0: Tidy up those flower beds and keep your walkways looking sharp with RYOBI's 40-volt cordless string trimmer. Yard work. Done and done. Click into Memorial Day savings happening now at your cordless power source, The Home Depot. Shop now at The Home Depot or homedepot.com. How doers get more done.
2: Elevated.
3: Oh, hi. Hello, nerds. Welcome. This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby. And I am that host of yours, that woman who rants and rambles and lives her entire life for ancient Greek history and mythology. Live. And I am back today with a new conversation episode. This one is so, so interesting. Again, as you will hear me say 10,000 times... So back in March, I spoke with Justin Lorenzo Bigi, who studies, well, so many things, as they will tell you in the episode. But in this case, we're talking Athenian citizenship and how that intersects with disability and Athenian myths and notions of autochthony, which is how they understood basically indigeneity. Being born of the land. We also talk a lot about generally studying the ancient world, ancient sourcing, ancient languages, so much. It was very fun, and you all know I will take any excuse to use the word autochthony. This episode is very heavy on the history in a great way, but also how that intersected with mythology. But like I said, Justin also shares a lot about disability in ancient Athens and what that meant for people, like how being a citizen affected one's life even more distinctly if they were disabled. It is absolutely fascinating, and I learned so much all over again listening before posting it because, again, we recorded it back in March. So huge thank you to Justin for coming on and for dealing with my ability to say, oh, that's so interesting, and only... Oh, that's so interesting. After almost every statement. One of these days, my conversation vocabulary will move beyond that word. But that day is not today. Conversations Textual ghosts the intersection of athenian autochthony and disability with justin lorenzo bg yeah so tell me tell me what you study tell me kind of what the thing is that you wanted to to share on the show
4: Okay. So, uh, I study a lot of, I like to call, I kind of consider myself a bit of a jack of all trades. So all three of my sort of theses slash dissertations that I have done or will do, um, have been like wildly different in topic. So for my BA, my, th- my dissertation for my BA was on Plato and the Neoplatonist and St. Augustine and language theory.
5: Ooh.
4: Um, and then I got, <laughs> so I have ADHD, so I got bored with that. <laughs>
3: yeah don't worry that's why i cover <laughs> literally everything on the show all the
4: time <laughs> i was like mm, no thank you uh, and then i pivoted switched over um found a niche and then started doing the same thing in my niche so i found my niche and the niche was epigraphy mm. and inscriptions and so i did my master's dissertation that was that was on autochthony and the myth of autochthony and sort of the creation of a unified Athenian identity, and I analyze that through funerary inscription.
5: Ooh. Um,
4: and then my poor supervisor, he was like, "Well, you see, for a PhD project, we usually take you know stuff that you've introduced in your masters, and then you write your proposal and you expand on that." And I was like, "No, <laughs> that is boring. What I want to do is keep the epigraphy side of things and the citizen identity side of things. But I want to talk about." Disability,
5: Mm. Um,
4: and so my PhD, which I'm in the process of, you know, going like hello, hello, Uh, please, please, Uh, just at various universities, as one does. It sounds like that's what
3: getting a PhD is, or starting one at least is like who uh who will take me? Who will give me money for it? (laughs) Yes,
4: money, please, money, Please. please. That's the most important part. So three very different topics with sort of the guiding principle of what language what language use and what we do with language tells us about you know who the ancients were
5: Mm
4: -hmm. um and so i think i think as far as sort of talking about myths and talking about mythology there's a lot that can be said about autochthony, which i'm sure you're very happy to hear (laughs)
5: <laughs>
4: uh yeah so the way that always uh-huh so what I looked at in my master's dissertation what I looked at in that part of what I do research on is basically you know what language do the Athenians use when they speak about themselves and when they speak about each other and what mythology is that drawing from what is the mythology that is being used to express identity how does that reflect in funerary? Inscriptions,
1: mm-hmm. and I chose
4: funerary inscriptions because I find it really interesting how the overlap between body and object is so strong and the representation of the physical body because you get especially in private slash personal funerary monuments, you get you know actual representations of the deceased um and then the inscriptions come in and Give context to those representations, and this con these contexts are built on this common ground of you know all these tightly woven. I call them networks of meaning, because you get references to you know for example one of my favorite monuments is the grave Celia of Anfarieti, who is an older woman. She's a grandmother, and she's holding her grandchild. And in the inscription itself, you know. What we get is pretty straightforward. The inscription is just like, you know, I hold the beloved child of my daughter the same way as I did when we were alive, now that we're both dead. So it's very touching. It's very simple. But then you sort of crack under the surface and you get all these, like, meanings. So, you know, okay, what does this tell us? Well, for example, it's very rare. You know, older women aren't very much accounted for. Older age in general is understudied in the ancient world, just because most of the references we do get to older people are in plays, they're in comedies, they're archetypes in comedies and drama. Um, but then, a connection that I drew was between the fact that well, older women also represent something particular when it comes to the household, because they're kind of in this in-between space where they're no longer women, you know, they're no longer of marriable age. But they still represent the continuation of the household mm. and they and on in that monu- on that monument in particular, we get you know sort of the three generations and the interaction of the three generations, because there's the grandmother, the grandchild, but then there's also you know the mother in between, and that connection's made clear. And so what does that tell us about the structure of the household? What does that tell us about the role of women in the household? And you know, for example, we don't, yes, we don't have that many references to older women, but what we do have is, you know, to sort of bring it back to the mythological theme, we do get, you know, the the hymn, the Homeric hymn to Demeter. Mm-hmm. And in that text, Demeter, in her search for Persephone, she disguises herself as an older woman and then is given, and then the reader and the, the author or authors sort of have the chance to explore that side of things and you can it's not an explicit connection but my argument is that it's there and it's part of sort of the mythological makeup that gives importance to these funerary documents
3: yeah that's really interesting because we do i mean demeter is sort of the most iconic mother of greek myth anyway and then so yeah in that hymn when we have her disguised and caring for a baby in that disguise you know like she kind of uses that as a way to be a mother again while she's looking for persephone mm-hmm. and of course there's also the i mean the putting the kid in the fire thing not ideal for the mother but you know maybe unrelated here <laughs> but i do always love that scene of why are you angry i'm just helping him um but that that is really interesting yeah and and kind of looking at that of course my the thing i talk about most is what is the role of women but also what is we what do we not know about women of the ancient world because of things that are are lost or missing so that's extra I mean that's just interesting also to to see like a depiction of somebody holding their grandchild but then also mentioning the child in between and having those generations there that's very lovely is is that in Keramikos? yes I realize I'm not being clear to my listeners but Kerameikos is the ancient Athenian like um cemetery that you can visit and it's pretty incredible. That's where I saw this uh this pomegranate that was still on the tree but had split open completely and was like open and broken and curled and hanging down but like still attached to the tree. And it was one of the – I just somehow just fell completely in love with this, like, one physical pomegranate in an in yeah. an ancient cemetery because it just could not have symbolized more.
4: Yeah. No, that's an amazing. I, I love it when things like that happen, when just, like, the pieces fall into place slightly too perfectly.
3: Yeah, exactly. Like, I ended up getting it tattooed on me, I'll be honest.
4: Oh, that's amazing. Well, it's, like, it's those moments where you're just like, oh, yes, perhaps there is magic.
3: Right? You know? And, yeah, I mean, and to dive – deeply into an unrelated kind of sort of well I suppose him to Demeter not unrelated but to me it's like the best way for me to get something for Persephone that doesn't feel like it's on, like giving this idea of a consensual relationship to Hades where I'm like no this is like a pomegranate saying no <laughs> to the Yeah end
4: of the this world. is I like mean. complicated and nuanced as you know yeah. that relationship was always represented.
3: Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Somehow that's like the only thing I remember from Karamaikos, other than obviously it was all very beautiful. But so this pomegranate's, like in my head for life.
4: Yeah, I don't know. I find I find, and here's the like the fourteen year old goth in me so I'm still jumping out. But I find cemeteries a very sort of peaceful place.
5: I mean,
3: <laughs> yeah, as a as a fourteen year old punk, you know, to to with goth friends, but I was very. Mm. I was very strongly the punk, but I get it completely. Like we used to just go, like we have this super spooky cemetery here in Victoria, and we used to go just, I don't know, no, let's just go wander it. That just seems like the best place to be, absolutely, in between our punk shows. Exactly.
4: Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I just, I don't know, I just find it like not even spooky. I just think that cemeteries are just such a thoughtful place and such a kind of, you know, you go in good. Co- you're if you're in a cemetery, you're always in good company.
3: That's very true and very yeah peaceful. It's mm-hmm. certainly quiet. Yeah. We also found figs in this keramico Cemetery and, and ate them. And I was like, this is just, I'm just having so much fun with like all yeah, of the surrounding yeah. Living,
4: yeah, no, I mean, and that's funny because like something else that I'm really passionate about um, and I try to, and this is more passionate like on my own, but like sort of try to bring into my research work as well is just this idea of like space as an, sort of an active participant. An mm. urban urban space is an active participant in the way that that identity develops and citizen identity develops, which is where sort of disability becomes so interesting
5: mm-hmm. as
4: well. Because, you know, um, and I haven't properly started research on this topic again, because I am in academia purgatory. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just floating. I'm not. I'm doing too many things. And I keep on telling people, like, I'm really happy that I took some time off in between my master's and my PhD, you know, because like that way I can rediscover who i am without academia and then uh i you know i'm doing 25 things and they're all academic things because can't stay away
3: i mean as someone who started this career being like this is not academic i am not an academic which like still i'm not but i'm like well but now i just talk to academics constantly and kind of i'm thinking of how could i find the time to go do my ma amidst all of this when in reality i'm probably like doing the equivalent of an ma like
4: Basically, yeah, just year. by yeah, exactly, just by listening to to you know, just by throwing the pumpkin into the enclosure,
3: exactly, but I am so curious about how, uh, and we'll see how I edit this together because of this, but I am so curious how you're figuring disability studying disability in with these topics, so I mean even yes. if you, it's not something you have you know started too deep, but I wanna hear you know. Oh my gosh. Yeah.
4: Yeah. So the basis is twofold. One is I am disabled in a multifaceted way, and my own disability has been central to the way in which I relate to the classics. So I was diagnosed with a seizure disorder in high school, and I grew up in Italy. And so the way that Italian high school works is you basically pick a specialization at like 14. Wow. Uh, And then you have like two years of wiggle room, but by you're like, by the start of your third year you're pretty much locked in um and what i was voluntold was that uh the classic specialization would have been really great and would have probably fit me really well and two years so first two years of my high school career and i think i should like i think it's really important to be really open about this kind of stuff because uh you know knocking the ivory tower from the inside is I think my aspiration and that of many others is the fact that um, so I almost failed ancient Greek and Latin basically through my entire high school career. Every single time I'd basically get by by the skin of my teeth. Um, It was dreadful. I thought about switching a million times, Um, I continued and so uh, in the first two years of high school I had surgery multiple times, Uh, was in a wheelchair for a good month and a half each time. So, had was basically relearning my own body, you know, while also coming face to face with concepts that I had never experienced before, you know, like all all the heiress. And it's, it sounds sort of cheesy, but it is very much true that I was relearning my body and I was learning this new thing and it was all about kind of structure and physicality and you know verbs and language kind of translating into how I needed to reassess myself Hmm. you know
5: Mm
4: -hmm. I love it I just yeah yeah so it was yeah
3: Uh, just to offer my own a similar thing the worst grades I ever got in university were in Greek mythology because it's (laughs) like sometimes your brain doesn't do the thing the way the class wants you to do the thing. And that doesn't mean you're not good at the thing. No, you know, exactly.
4: Exactly. Um, And that's actually, that's actually what happened. So I first two years of high school surgery, physical, like needing to relearn my body, both physically and like having to sort of adapt to these new challenges, learning this new thing, struggling for of course as a lot of, you know, undiagnosed neurodivergent kids you know, you might thrive for a while in an academic environment, and then you hit the first roadblock and it's like all of the little coping mechanisms and all of the sort of the structure that you've created crumbles. And then because there's little to no support, you have no way of building that back up again. So then I was also diagnosed with a seizure disorder in my third year. And that was much more complicated than just the surgery because high school is hell and yeah, um, it's hard high, enough. School is <laughs> high school is hard enough. And then um, there was a lot of, I had to navigate a lot of aids because of the seizures, but I was navigating all of this while also, as I mentioned, like struggling very much with ancient Greek, with Latin, sort of the two kind of central courses. And everyone was like, you are, what are you doing? When I announced, by, you know my fourth year that I really wanted to continue doing this into university. And so, uh, so I grew up in Italy, but my mom's from the States, and so I want I and I've sort of sort of always lived in between the two countries, but I wanted to try to live, long, like for a longer period of time in the U.S. just to see how it was, and so I decided that I wanted to do my undergrad in the U.S. I was very generously awarded a scholarship that allowed me to do this, but I'll forever remember um, the Latin teacher that I had in my last year of high school saying, "Oh, you're going to the States? Oh, that's fine. You'll be fine. It's easier there." Ugh. Yeah. Yeah. Which opens a whole other thing about Italian, like sort of the Italian school system, uh, which is not the kind of worms we are here to unearth. Um, but then, two things happened. So I went to the U.S., uh, I started my, you know, B.A., Ancient Greek, and I arrived. Hmm. Like, I, I mean, the first year was tough, because the first year, I spent most of the first year being like, "I am a fraud. I have tricked them all. Soon they will discover my fraudulent scheme." imposter imposter syndrome, which is what you know.
5: Oh yeah.
3: A lot of
4: us, a lot of us struggle with. I um, mean,
3: all, all the time, literally all the time. All the time. I, I, I was, still don't know Greek or Latin, and like, the, so I I'm, the okay. imposter syndrome is there all the. I know. Yeah, of course. Also, because we
4: we think that the languages are the be all end all. Like you can't be yes. a without the languages, and it's like
3: well and i didn't learn that incorrect. until like recently i have a classics degree where no one during the course of my entire degree ever said that greek and latin are vital to the further learning of classics and i'm just like how how does that get away how do they get away with like not telling you that when you're doing a physical <laughs> classics degree and then i hear later like oh no it's like if you don't know the languages you're not at all a classicist It's
4: like okay, yeah okay, i mean even no. now even now when I'm applying for, P, as I've been applying for PhD programs, a lot of the feedback that I've gotten is like, cause maybe like, you know, you've got word limits. I don't mention, you know, I, there's always, you know, I might not mention, oh, I know both Greek and Latin, but then a lot of the feedback that I've been getting from like potential supervisors have been like, oh no, you have to make sure that you mention that. Gosh. They want to know, they want to see that you know it. And I'm like, first off, would my work be any less valuable, you know? It's mm-hmm. just, yeah, would my work be any less, if I, if I had continued to struggle in my, un, in my undergrad with ancient Greek and Latin and not done them and still continued to study the classics, you know, it's having been sort of on both sides of, I really struggled with this
5: mm-hmm. for
4: so long. I hated it. And then also having been on the side of like, well, actually, this is fantastic. It, you don't need, you don't need them. You know, some of the most intelligent classicists I know, you know, did the languages, tried them out and not intelligent. That's not the word I want to use, but mm. some of the most nuanced and capable and, you know, really impressive classicists that I know took the languages for a year. And then were are like, yeah. And it just, I'm, it's one of the things that just fills me with joy is seeing how more and more, we're moving away from the languages as an absolute paradigm, as a marker of, you know, worthiness of your scholarship. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, I mean, it, yeah, it it just is such a gatekeepy thing.
4: No, yeah, exactly. Um, but, you know, it's just it's so ingrained in the way that language, the discipline is taught and it's so ingrained in the way that, you know, people view the discipline that it doesn't, you know, it's just it's there and you should know mm-hmm. it. And if you don't, it's your personal failure. hmm. Yeah, no, um, I find it very frustrating because, again, as having been sort of on both sides of that, it's just like, well, this, you know, the alternate universe me that never got into it, never, never found the knack for it. I don't think that their scholarship would be any less valuable than the current universe version of me, you know. Um, but, yeah, so basically I came to my undergrad, entirely different environment. um and I think it was a. I think it was both, you know, finding my footing with the with something that had impacted my self esteem for so long, and then also for the first time in my life, not experiencing ableism when it came to something that I felt so vulnerable about, which was my seizures.
5: Mm-hmm.
4: Um, and so those two things combined. So there's always been a very strong undercurrent of me growing to me growing as a scholar. In my own personal journey and me growing in my own personal journey of self-acceptance so it's always been in the back of my mind it's always been there um Mm -hmm. and studying inscriptions for my master's and seeing that actually is what made it click in my head that i could approach that you know there's these objects that combine both the physical and the written word in a way that not many other things do. We have votives that do that as well, um, but votives, you know, votives count as a type of inscription if there mm-hmm. is if if there is writing on them. I almost said votives count as a type of inscription if they're inscribed, <laughs> and that would have been terrible. Um, <laughs> um, but I mean, yeah, not wrong though. Not wrong, not incorrect. <laughs> just like bad. <laughs> Um, yeah, and so studying inscriptions, studying, you know, the written object that connects the physical to the more kind of intellectual side of things, and then saying, well, but there's so much disability theory that talks about embodiment. And there's incredible work that's being done, you know, about sort of disability in the ancient world, about what does it mean um, to embody Uh, And what does it mean to talk about embodying or talk about bodies in the context of, you know, a time that we no longer have direct access to Mm -hmm. and a time that we, you know, seek to reconstruct, whether it's, you know, by, you know, studying the pigments on statues, by historical reconstruction in movies, you know, there's always this grasping for the physical in the ancient world, but it's always such a finally now not as white. But was very white for a very long period of time. But then it's it's always been such a you know reconstructed. It's always been so non-disabled,
5: mm-hmm.
4: and the spaces have never been read as disabled. Um, fi- you know, in the last ten years, there's been finally there's we've begun to sort of look at ancient space and say, well, actually, maybe not. Maybe there's more to it. And so that's that that whole big convoluted sort of mess of feelings is what pushed me to want to study disability in the ancient world.
5: Mm-hmm. Uh,
3: Classics Twitter has really opened my eyes to the fact that that's like a field of study and there's just so much there. It's been really interesting. And I'm very grateful for the people that are on there and sharing that stuff because I don't think, I mean, I certainly had no idea before you know, that like, not only is it something that you can study, but there's just so much there. There's there's yeah. so much there to be studied.
4: Mm-hmm. And there's so much there to be studied. I think it also really benefits from just, it's sort of, it's the same with studying race in the ancient world or gender in the ancient world. It's, this, it's, it's sort of the intersectionality becoming undeniable. Mm. It's, you know, it's important because it says, well, actually, no, you cannot study one without the other. You know, so um, a text that it has been studied to death, but a paper that I am currently working on is there's this um, speech by Lysias that's it's very famous. It's one of his most famous, Lysias um, 24, and it's about this disabled man who is arguing that he should be allowed to receive his disability pension. Hmm. Um, and it's been used <clears throat> a lot of the scholarships has been mostly about the economic side of things
3: right, right,
4: which is totally fine, perfectly interesting, but very li- if you open those articles, if you read those articles, very little is done. It's sort of the disability has very often been a bit of an afterthought, a bit of a footnote.
5: Mm-hmm.
4: you know it's been like, oh yeah, and then and then he's also disabled. And, you know, I've been looking, I haven't found it yet, if it exists and anyone is listening, please, please, and you have written the paper that does that, please send it my way. I would absolutely love to read it. But, you know, I haven't found a paper yet that says, yes, this person is poor, this person needs to rely on um, government support, but this person is also disabled. And those two things are connected because this person Mm -hmm. is receiving economic support specifically because of their disability. Um, and I still haven't found the paper that looked at that.
3: Interesting. Because, it, it, yeah. I mean, obviously, it depends on how you describe it to me. But, like, that sounds like it's completely uh, obvious that, that that should be sort of an equal part of studying that. Because, especially because it, if it proves or shows that that the government was providing assistance for people with disabilities. Like, I think that alone is so fascinating, let alone the disability or the, the economic side, but just the, the fact of that, I think is really interesting in itself. Is this Athenian? I yes. Yeah. Yes, it is.
4: Um, which also opens a bit of another can of worms when you look at sort of um, citizenship. So that's the other big side of the mm. thing that I look at is I look at citizenship. Um, mm-hmm. I in particular, I look at, you know, how citizenship is expressed and how in the case of funerary inscriptions, especially sort of mythology comes into play with that. But with disability, it's, you know, so much of citizenship is wrapped up in this idea of kind of honor of doing things that are worthy of honor. Mm. um, And that therefore, make, so you do an act, and that act is honorable, and therefore you're worthy of honor. So it sort of becomes a kind of a self, self self-sustaining system. And Mm -hmm. then in Athens, you add in the fact that autochthony is a thing. And so if you're a citizen, you are inherently worthy of of honor because you're a citizen Mm -hmm. so it's like if you're a citizen you so citizenship is maintained yes by birth and by blood but it's also maintained through actions and through the things that you do so you're if you're a citizen if you're an Athenian citizen okay if you're a male Athenian citizen okay you have to participate in politics what does it mean Mm -hmm. if you can't what does it mean if you can't in Athens because there's this idea of inherent citizenship then you get systems of support and then you get uh-huh. mechanisms of support and that's interesting because if you compare it for example with other places like sparta where citizenship isn't as inherently defined there isn't some big overarching mythological reasoning of well we've codified the genetic element of this myth you know we've all came, we, we're autochthonous we uh-huh. either and of course it's one of the autoch- autochthonous as a term is one of those terms that is hotly debated. Because either it means we came from the earth, so we were born from it, so we are all descendants of Eric who, you know, had his little snake legs and then came out of the earth and they put him in the basket and so on and so forth, or, um, which is the, the, the more practical side of it, it's we were always here. We didn't come mm-hmm. from anywhere else. Athenians um, were always here. We, we started here. We didn't emigrate. We didn't immigrate. Um, but yeah, but because Athens has that, then you get all these interesting, uh, developments where yes, citizenship, you have to do things to maintain your citizenship, but then your citizenship is also maintained inherently by who you are. Mm -hmm. And so what happens when you throw disability into the mix? What happens when in a system where you have to perform citizenship or you have to perform the duties of citizenship? But you can't because you're disabled, well, then, in cert- you know, here you have this mechanism that ensures that um, you don't have to re- you don't have to renounce your citizen status.
3: Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. Does any of it apply to women? I'm assuming not. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: Tidy up those flower beds and keep your walkways looking sharp with RYOBI's 40-volt cordless string trimmer. Yard work. Done and done. Click into Memorial Day savings happening now at your cordless power source, The Home Depot. Shop now at The Home Depot or homedepot.com. How doers get more done.
2: elevated
4: um depends on i mean do you mean citizen women
3: so what what tell me about citizen women what what constituted women becoming citizens or, or being citizens in Athens? Cause I feel like I don't know enough about that generally.
4: Well, I think, I mean, the first thing is birth.
3: Yeah. So, so they were official citizens.
4: What is a citizen? Right. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh no, here we please go. though. Yeah. Oh, because
3: I've always so interested in this because I know like, we know most about Athenian women because they wrote everything down and kept it or we kept it or what have you. Um. But also that like, that kind of gives us this, Interesting and somewhat flawed idea of women in the Greek world generally because I'm, Athenian I'm, <laughs> women are so unique, or but please, like, I mean, and I I'm don't, just, I, I'm, just laughing. Not good
4: at, yeah. I'm just laughing because they're like, what is a citizen? So, a lot yeah. of have, so it's like, okay, so you're sort of your ideal. Um, and here comes, you know, the in me. sometimes he's still in there somewhere, just rattling the bars of the cage, screaming, being like, you did all this work, and I'm like, shh, <laughs> shh, get out. But yeah, so, you know, so what is a citizen? Okay, so a citizen is an adult male, because that's the definition that we've always sort of had, the mm-hmm. um It's the, the, the adult male body, and they're the ones who go to court and do all the politics stuff. And it's like, okay. But then the counter argument to that, and it's been presented in many different ways, by many different scholars but there has been a very a very real push to say well okay actually it wasn't you know it's like the man goes out and does the politics and then the woman says women women stay inside and don't do the politics and that's how it worked. but women still were involved in religion and so what does it mean when you have women who are involved really closely in religion What does it mean when you have a state religion when your state is when your religion is state regulated when those two elements are kind of in in, inescapably connected Mm. so uh what is a citizen is what is a citizen is actually a much much more complicated question because our understanding of what is a citizen and caveat i am talking mostly about athens in this case because it is what i've focused on i know i'm boring
3: But isn't Athens also like what we have the most on? Like there is the most to focus on,
4: and that's the other thing. There is a survivorship bias. Like this is what this is most. This is the documentation we've got. Yeah.
3: Um,
4: But yeah. So what is a citizen? A citizen is someone who participates in politics. Okay. Then all men are like all. Okay. Then men are citizens. That's great. Mm -hmm. But also religion is political. Religion is state-regulated. Religion has to do very strongly with identity. So you. So it's thankfully we have started to move away from the idea of the men had all the power and the women were kind of just there
5: Mm -hmm.
4: Um, because there was nuance and there was, you know, things that complicated the general picture. Um, And I think that, that definitely helps as well. in when we bring in other elements such as disability, because if we move away from a sort of a universally defined, you know, citizenship equals citizen participation and citizen participation equals the men going to the law courts and men, you know, being part of the Brittany and of the boulé and doing all the work. Then that's when you open up the possibility to break that mold. And that's when, you know, you kind of bring to the forefront the voices that maybe haven't been heard that much.
3: That's so interesting. I'm totally guilty of this, too, of, of, you know, talking about women especially Athenian who as if just like they're there unfortunately and have no power and obviously I do that as a I point out that that's bad but at the same time still totally guilty of of assuming that or or just kind of going with that because I think it is sort of the long-standing idea but this it's so much more interesting to look at it like this and saying that like I mean if anything is obvious about the Athenian world, it's that religion was political. You know, like, you can see that by just being in Athens today, that, like, everything kind of revolved around yeah. around the religion. And and so that that is so much more interesting and then being able to look at it in terms of women and, and other people who were not able to participate in the, quote-unquote, traditional idea of politics. Exactly. I love
4: that. Yeah, and I mean... You know, that is, it's not something that I've focused that much on personally, but, you know, something can also be said about enslaved people
5: Mm -hmm.
4: and, you know, and how, you know, how, how does shifting the definition of citizen, trying to break the mold of what we define as citizen and what we define as power, help us in elevating and, you know, and, and highlighting voices that may not have been as, like, what are our textual ghosts? How do we break the mold of citizen to allow space for those ghosts to come forward? You know, yeah. we're going back to the cemetery. It's all haunted. It's all I mean, haunted. I'm,
3: I'm writing down the term textual ghost so that I remember it when I'm editing cause that's wonderful.
4: No, that's exciting. But yeah, no, it's like, you know, not, so, it's like, yeah, it's all haunted.
3: What I study yeah. is haunt,
4: What I study is hauntings in all their various shapes and forms.
3: Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, I mean, obviously all I want to talk about ever is like, you know, what we do and don't know about the roles of women in ancient Greece, because that is just what fascinates me most of all. But I it, it is so interesting to look at kind of everyone that was on the outside, everyone that wasn't like this. The What we, you know, had is this traditional idea of Athenian citizenry for so long, um, especially just hearing that they did help monetarily or economically help people who were disabled and couldn't participate, but were, you know, Athenian. So it seems like in the end, what matters most is like, are you Athenian in, in the traditional, the sprung from the earth kind of sense?
4: Yeah. Well, I mean, but then I feel like it's also important to point out that there is the other side of that, which is like, Mm. well, if you weren't. Yeah. Politically you were left in the dark. I mean, okay. See, I, I say an, I say a statement and then I'm like, well, actually, no, there's nuance. Rabbit holes. This is turtles, what I say.
3: That, this happens to me all the time. <laughs> turtles, <laughs> turtles
4: are. all the way down. <laughs> um, but yeah, so it's like, you know, well, okay. So you have that if you're, if you're a citizen, if you're a born mm-hmm. citizen, but what happens when you don't? Yeah. Um, and then, you know, and then we get really interesting examples of that as well because uh, to bring it back to the gravestone, there's another gravestone that I've looked at that's once again about women, and it's once again about the relationship that exists and that builds between women. But for example, um, it's, it's um, the gravestele of a woman named Melita. Um, and it's made explicit on the gravestele. Two things are made explicit. She is not a citizen, and she was, and she took care of children. Hmm. Um, and the third thing, which is directly connected to these, is the gravestone is set up either in name or she paid for it, we don't know, by the woman who Melita took care of as a child. Oh, wow. Exactly. But it's made abundantly clear that um, Melita isn't a citizen. Right. But her father is a powerful medic. So medics were non-resident, non-citizen residents on Athenian soil, was powerful enough and had done enough for the city that he didn't need to pay the metoikon tax which is the tax that you, the residency tax that you had to pay if you weren't a citizen, but you still wanted to li- live in Athens. Huh. And so here we have another kind of power, which is economic, really, you know, economic power. Yes, um, Milita's father was precluded from most political power because he he wasn't a citizen. But, you know, his daughter was important enough that she got her own grave, you know, it was important enough that she got her own grave seal. She got her own inscription, which cost money, yeah. um, which means that someone cared for her enough to do those things, even though even though they weren't part of the traditional sort of power structure of <laughs> Athenian citizenship. But they had economic power, which you know is another facet, which is why I think it's really important to kind of always remember that when we're talking about citizenship, when we're talking about power and power dynamics, there are so many different ways in which these manifested and in which these you know came to the fore
3: yeah yeah i mean i think that's i mean it's certainly important to talk about the alternative too because i mean it's not to suggest that athens was some kind of like dream location for everyone (laughs) uh but that's really fascinating and of course it's unsurprising that economic power gets you things even that far back (laughs) But yeah, so I mean, and then do we have, I mean, I, I'm sure it's tough in terms of like actual examples because of the lack of power, but you know, the lives of people who, I mean, I suppose, was it, was it common to, to live in Athens if you weren't a citizen and you didn't have economic power? Like, was that a a common occurrence that I mean, we know of?
4: I think so. Um mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of things that I've looked at that we can sort of use to um, talk about that. I mean, we definitely know that, you know, there were most most wet nurses, for example, weren't, mm. uh, weren't citizens. It was a job that was typically considered not a job for citizen women. So it was either enslaved women or metics, you know, non-resident, uh, non-citizen residents.
5: Mm-hmm.
4: But yeah, I mean, there's a great book that actually touches on that, and I can't remember the author right now, but it's it's all about sort of non, it's women in Athens, and in particular non-citizen women in mm-hmm. Athens, foreign women in Athens, I think is the title. And yeah, it sort of looks at, you know, women who are already kind of underrepresented, under uh, understudied at this point, but definitely underrepresented in our sources. And then you sort of take that a step, you know, even lower.
5: Mm-hmm. And now
4: you're looking at, you know, non-citizen, non-citizen women. So basically no protection, you know, no social safety net that we know of that we can speak of other than, you know, again, relationships and other than those relationships that women created and relied on and maintained. It's really interesting. Uh, do you know, do you know about Niira No. Oh, because I feel like she'd be way up your alley. Okay. So... Talking about legal speeches, speeches. Mm-hmm. Um, we have this speech that is his name. It's pseudo Demosthenes. We know it's not Demosthenes. It's probably this dude named Apollodorus, and he brings this speech to court because one of his political rivals. Um, and it's 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 entire it's politics. So one of his political rivals. It co- It turns out that apparently he is married to a non Athenian woman named Neaira, and what they've done is they've passed their Children, or they passed Niira's daughter. The paternity isn't clear, and I think it's kept intentionally ambiguous. But mm. they passed Niira's daughter off as a citizen. That is the accusation. Hmm. And then it becomes, it devolves into this like really sort of intense and brutal ad hominem attack against Niira and her daughter Fano, because Niira used to be a sex worker.
5: Mm.
4: And so, in the, the speech, is, the speech is fantastic. <laughs> it's a great speech. It says, it tells us so much about. Body politics, about gender politics, about sexuality, about you know, prostitution, what sex work meant, what it represented in Athens. Um it's often, against the IRA, is often taken in concert with against Timarcus. To also touches on bodily autonomy and bodily integrity and citizenship from a different point of view, which is um this young man who was accused of prostituting himself, and that was illegal. He could if citizens were not allowed to prostitute themselves or hmm. be prostituted. And so tamarcus is accused of doing it of selling his selling you know sex in exchange for money and that precludes him technically from being that would see him stripped of his citizen status whereas with Nyaira, it's it's whole it's 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 similar it's, she's apparently according to the story she's an ex-sex worker she can't be a citizen because it's an oxymoron you can't be a citizen and be a sex worker not only that but she's married a citizen Which would be fine. It's legal. It's perfectly legal. But this child who could be her husband's daughter, might not be, might be a child of a previous marriage, even worse. She's presented as a citizen and she participates in the cult. So the Mm. big thing that Fano is allowed to be Basilina and that's a big no-no. And then there's a few other sordid details about her and Niayra basically trapping Fano's new husband uh, and trying to coerce him into giving them money. There is a strong assumption that a lot of what is recounted in the speech is fabricated as a way for Apollodorus to get back at Stefanos, who is Neira's husband. But mm. uh, the core of the speech is it's just it's such a fantastic treasure trove of a lot of the different topics topics we've been touching on about citizenship and identity and gender and bodies and all those things all mixed up together. Uh, I love it. It's one of my favorite. I love it. It's a great speech. Highly recommend it.
3: I'm going to be looking for it. Absolutely. That's really interesting. And so it actually like leads to a few questions I had even before of, you know, so, uh, if, if you marry a non-citizen and you have a child, are they a citizen? It sounds like, yeah, no okay so they no. they passed her off so regardless regardless of whether or not she was the daughter of this of the, I, the yeah, Stefano, yeah
4: no it's illegal so per the paraphrane okay. citizenship law a citizen an Athenian citizen is someone who is born of two Athenian parents
3: okay so they have to be both be Athenian yes yeah
4: they have to both be Athenian
3: interesting it's
4: not it doesn't say grandparents Interestingly, so it's not like, oh, this person has to be. It can even be an Athenian citizen and, and someone who was naturalized. Oh, okay. The naturalization was very difficult to obtain.
3: Yeah. So what's the deal with that? That also sounds interesting. Like how, um, how could you be naturalized? How could you officially be a citizen?
4: Uh, very often it sort of comes back to ideas of timae. So you do mm-hmm. enough things that are honorable towards the Athenian citizen body Mm. and then you are sort of granted the uh the privilege of becoming an Athenian citizen with all the obligations and all the privileges of that entity. So there is so it, 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 there is the possibility of, you know, social mobility from a citizenship point of view, but then in actuality it is quite different. Yeah. yeah. Um and so it's it's a closed system, but it's technically open, but it's also really closed. But it also doesn't the the you know the really important thing is that it's not Defined by class, right? So anyone, you know, as long as you are born Athenian, you are a citizen.
5: Mm -hmm.
4: So even if you know, and that's why they have social security because maintaining that, you know, maintaining that citizenship status because it's it's an inherent, it's defined by genetics, quote unquote. Then your relationship to the state changes,
3: right? Uh, So are there a lot of cases then of like? People being passed off as Athenian or lying or, and getting caught or what have you. I don't know. I mean, that just, that seems so interesting because, because it is like, you know, like you say, like quote unquote genetics, like you're, you're born into it. It seems to me it'd be something that you'd want to try to lie about if you really wanted
4: it. Well, that's what the whole against okay, the IRA is about. It's yeah. About, you know, the, you know, it's, 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 you know, it's food stamp fraud. Or like, that's the rhetoric, you know, the more things right. change, the more they say the same. It's like, oh, they're, you know, undocumented people passing themselves off as citizens to defraud right. the system.
3: Right. That's so true. Even just using that word. Yeah. Huh.
4: Yeah. I mean, the, one of the, you know, frustrating things is that we don't know who won to be against the IRA. We don't oh. know. If, yeah, I know. I know. We don't know if Apollodorus was able to convince the jury or if the jury was like, these people, it's fine. We don't care. And it's like I, its like that one piece of the puzzle that I think would tell us so much about what the view of this whole genetic citizenship thing was. It's like okay, but like from the from the narrative, it sound from the narrative of the speech, it does sound that like that Stefanos and Neira were at that point probably you know in their forties, forties or fifties. You know they already had a daughter that was marriageable, mm-hmm. and Fano I think is married twice, which you know. Doesn't mean much, but there's definitely there's definitely the impression um, that you get from the speeches that they've been a well-established part of the community for quite some time. And having the the verdict would tell us so much about like how much did, how much weight did that carry? Yeah. You know, did they say, oh, we've known these people for the last 30 years. We're not going to we're not going to you know they're part of this community. Did they lie? Did they not? Doesn't matter. They're still important. And I feel like yeah. we're missing that piece. And it's so frustrating because we'll never know. We'll never know. Yeah.
3: I mean, story of like everything I think about all the time. Yeah. Like, what What do we not know?
4: Yeah. So much. I know.
3: So much. Everything.
4: Every- I mean, not everything, but a lot. No. And, you I know. know we-
3: but everything that like all the qu- – it, it feels like everything that matters because those are the questions that we have are the things we don't know. And then so, I mean – I just focus on those things. I just I'm especially lost art and plays and so
5: many things. Yeah. I could think about it forever.
4: But I I think for me at least that's part of part of the charm, part of the fun, is like you know, back to the sort of textual ghost. It's haunted and I like it that way. Yeah. You know, it's like it's we don't need to at least for me it's like we don't need to know everything. Also because it's like I don't know How do I put this? Sometimes I feel like there's this idea that, you know, to understand the past, we need to know all of it. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that's true. I think the only way that we understand the past is by having these gaps that we then put in conversation with our own reality. Mm. And that's the only way that we can really know the past because nothing is certain when we're talking Mm -hmm. about memory. Memory is always going to be distorted.
3: Yeah. all, All history is subjective and based on who wrote it down and why and let alone who kept that and why and that's the thing yeah that that's what interests me so much as well is just uh, what do we have but also like why do we have this like how many people had to decide that it was worth keeping for it to end up with
4: us which is just which is incredible you know it's it's one you know everything matters you yeah. decide to save this text, and then this text is going to come down through centuries and centuries and centuries because it mattered to you know ten different scribes.
3: Yeah. Or and then you think of the the random things that we know. I mean, mm. obviously, primarily archaeological stuff is going to be just it, it. A lot of the time, it just happened to survive. Um, but then I think of like Euripides and how, how I'm grateful every day that like one person collected.
5: Euripides,
3: and that's why we have so many. And that's just like this wild and random occurrence that we have one person's collection. And that alone is so mind blowing and fascinating. And just to think of like, yeah, I mean, or or like Sappho and the way that so much of that has come down and like why it's fragmentary. And like, it's not that somebody chose to keep it, it's that so much of the time it's that random things survived through completely random like natural intervention almost. Mm -hmm.
4: But I do think that like if one thing that's really sort of become crystal clear for me over the, you know, almost a decade now that I've been studying this stuff is that like all it takes is one person.
5: Yeah. As you said with
4: Euripides, all it takes is one person and then we get all that. And it's like, my God, there was anything more that could remind me of just like how important just one single individual is.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I I wish I knew of more examples of of the level of randomness that it does exist in that Euripides example because it that one's just truly so incredible
4: to yeah, me. Yeah, no, it blows my mind every time I think about it.
3: Right? Like I and I choose to think about it so often cuz I mean, one Euripides is amazing and like I love that we have so many of his. But also that we have so many in like one chunk of of the alphabet is so it's, it's amazing yeah <laughs> i'm like but what yeah. if the whole person's collection survived oh it's a uh, it, it's so i mean god all of this stuff uh, this is why i definitely do need to do my master's just if i can like <laughs> pick some random thing like this and and dive more into it myself but it, it it's also interesting and and so the i'm interested in in the mythology behind it obviously you know i have briefly told the the origin story of athens on the show but so long ago i'm so interested in the ideas of like sprung from the earth versus always here so is there more to do with that i mean i know the mythology is like yeah it's eric and his little snakiness kind of i mean the best is that it sprung he sprung from the earth where Hephaestus (laughs) it, Hephaestus yep. <laughs> or rather Athena sort of uh, brushed Hephaestus off her I don't know why I'm step tiptoeing around it but it's just so, such a bizarre story of like okay cool uh, Hephaestus just jizzed on Athena's leg and she brushed it off and then thus was born the Athenian people mm-hmm. <laughs> but so did they I mean that's the sprung from the earth but then did they I don't know quite what I'm asking. Is there more to say about the, the mythology behind it, what they believed, how they saw it on a more personal and like daily life kind of way?
4: If we, if we look at urban space, there is sort of the ongoing hotly debated of where was Eric mm. Where was he? Like the iconography of Eric Thonious, where was it? There are some people who argue it was on the pediment of the uh, Parthenon. He was definitely present part of the imagery of autochthony. Uh, There's a great paper that talks exactly about this. It's actually the reason why I even started studying this stuff, because that's the paper that really introduced me to um, the idea of ideology reflects in space. Um, You know, so yeah, so there was definitely uh, a very, not very strong, but definitely a felt presence Mm
5: -hmm. of
4: the mythological background that surrounded you know, the Athenian origin myth yeah. and this, you know, this very much codified legalized mythology that was, you know, part and parcel of the way that Athenians saw themselves.
3: Do you know where the snakes come in? I mean, I know snakes in general are, are pretty like important overall mythologically, but it it's always been so interesting to me that he's just like, and, and not like, just him, but yeah, like he's just, I, I think my, very early episode of this was called like snake people of early Athens because it, it, there's more than just him too right or I know there's like a lot of there's a lack of clarity on like who was first and who came out yeah him, so there was there's one like or two generations but yeah
4: there's an ongoing sort of there's Ericksonius there's Ericksonius um it's just they're slightly spelled differently I sometimes yeah. have problems keeping straight who's who, because it's, um, like right? yeah, like, it's
3: like a Erectheus and and right? Yeah, Erectheus,
4: Erechthonius.
3: Yeah, and then there's like there's, yeah, is this two people or is of them, it one person?
4: Two people, one person. One of them has daughters. The daughters are the ones who right. like, lift up the blanket and see that Erechtheus <laughs> or Erechthonius has snake legs, <laughs> sneg, if you will. <laughs> and um, I will. Thank you. Excellent. I think th- <laughs> I think that should I think that should be the title. None, none of this textual ghost <laughs> <bullshit>. snags, <laughs> snags. Um, yeah so um, I think it's just because snakes are associated with the underworld mm. and they're iconic right. because right. they go underground they come back out you know ancient science doesn't really know how things work so they're like oh, they die and come back to life every year and they go underground hibernate it's like sure fine um, but, I love ancient uh, science that's great it's like it this happened to me in a dream elaborate no <laughs> uh yeah basically um and so yeah i think it's just because snakes are underground catonic right and no it makes sense
3: yeah just they they come from the earth in the same way so that's like kind of the human connection connecting yeah. it with something yeah. from the earth and sort of humanity yeah i think it's yeah. just that i like it i like it i'm not a snake person but somehow mythology has made me one so as long as the snake is not real then i'm here for it
4: oh do not are they too creepy crawly
3: they're my yeah they're like the thing for me like the interesting in, like the physical reaction no matter what of like ugh. meanwhile i like love sharks to the ends of the earth like it's not about them being scary it's like the physicality
4: that's of hilarious because yeah. for me the animal t- total tangent but for me the animal that's like ugh, yeah, is sloth. Really? Yes.
3: Interesting. Yeah. I love that.
4: I just can't look at them. They freak me out. They freak yeah. the out. I'm like, no, yeah. stop. stop. It, I think because they go slightly into the uncanny valley for me.
3: Oh, totally. I can see
4: that. Yeah. I like look at them, and I'm like, you almost look like a person, and that yeah. unsettles me.
3: Yeah, no, that snakes are my like, Ugh, uh, no matter what. I don't know why. Oh, that's, yeah, it's also interesting. So what, uh, I'm trying to think of more ways to keep you talking, basically, if you have more (laughs) to share.
4: (laughs) Because like, we've gone into so many different, really interesting directions, (laughs) uh, which is great, because I think it really captures the fact that like, people are like, so what do you study? And I'm like, do you have an hour and a half in which I can explain to you all of the ways in which my little ADHD brain has connected everything that I study, even though it's 25 different topics?
3: I love that, though. I mean, and I think it connects so well. And uh, these are such interesting things about Athens and and sort of connect with the idea that we know so much more about Athens than so many other places.
5: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which,
3: you know, has its like dark sides of it's too bad that we don't know more about elsewhere because of like sort of an Athenian bias. But I'm glad that we know so much about life in Athens in that way, right? Like
4: uh, Yeah. No, I mean it's true. I mean, we haven't even touched on like the whole other side of the disability stuff, which is uh votive objects. Hmm. And like more embodiment stuff. So and in particular, so um
3: Oh yeah, Asclepius was on your when you filled out my form. Yeah, Thank the you for me. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah.
4: So the other thing, the other thing that connects to inscriptions that so um and this is a bit outside of Athens. Mm. It's, it happened in Athens as well, but um, so we have these very big healing sanctuaries. We have the Eskopeia, um, and a big thing at the Ascopeia, especially at Epidaurus, is that there are inscriptions, and these inscriptions talk about, are written or dictated or produced by, very often they're produced by disabled and or impaired people. Who are talking about their illnesses and hmm. more often than not they are talking about how the god came down and in a dream healed them uh there's a lot of theories about what this dream actually was uh we can't i won't go into it because it's very hotly debated and a lot of people just discuss it and it's i think it's one of those things that we're never going to be able to explain yeah like all we know is that these people fell asleep and woke up and they were cured whether this yeah. meant they were knocked out and surgery was performed on, you know, rudimentary surgery was performed on them, or they got so high, or, you know, they just, it was just a whole placebo effect. We'll never know. We will not know yeah. because these stories are inherently mythology.
5: Yeah.
4: But what I find so interesting is, well, two things. One is these are the closest, I think, other than Lysias, which is, I wouldn't call it a first person narrative None of, none of these can be defined first person narratives the way that we would define them this isn't sick or disabled or temporarily disabled people telling their story this is this these are stories that have been filtered nonetheless through you know whoever was inscribing mm-hmm. through whoever wrote the the speeches these aren't but i think these inscriptions in particular are the closest we can get to mm-hmm. a first person narrative of disability and in connection to those, we also have votive objects. And what those are is very often you'll have body parts and models of body parts. That. And they're I love them. They're fantastic. Yeah. They I've talked
3: about them on the show wonderful. before because they blow my mind. I just think it's so cool. Like I, I take my sweet time in that Acropolis Museum every time because they've got so much on it on that lowest level, and you're just like, wow, like the things, like here's just an ear. Because I really needed like my ear infection cured or something. Yeah. It's yeah, yeah, it's so lovely.
4: And they've been they've been often read as sort of this idea that the body and illness is fragmented, and so that mm. this is a way of reconciling that. And I don't think so. So I think that reading that sort of inherently views disability as wrong or in- unfortunate. There's this reading of this like the idea that like oh they you know disability it was such a so terrible such a horrible thing to have that. They had to find a way to reconcile their fragmented body. And I think that there's a much more nuanced way of reading them. And that sort of comes back to the whole idea of like, okay, what happens if we read these as, you know, first person, or as close as we can get to that first person narratives of disability? What does it mean to, you know, embodiment theory? If we're saying, well, you know, and then we can start looking at more recent stuff. And that's where the intersection comes. And that's where the connection to the present comes into play. So strongly for me, I think, you know, okay, what about, modern day prosthetics
5: mm-hmm.
4: what's you know what's a prosthetics where what is their relationship to their body how can we draw parallels between those and these ancient votives? and then we have you know these inscriptions that talk about you know um i came to the temple because i had this ailment and then i fell asleep and the god cured me and then i woke mm-hmm. up and i was and i went home and i was fine Um, You know, what does that tell us about illness and impairment? And I think also one of the pitfalls that we often encounter when talking about disability is that in our modern view of disability, it is so polarized. Mm -hmm. Either you're ill or you're not, there is no spectrum, even though it should be a spectrum. You know, I think it's because we, in our modern view, view disability as such a polarized, either you're sick or you're not, you're disabled or you're not. Mm-hmm. But we have to always keep, I think, in the back of our minds when talking about ancient disability that you know they didn't have antibiotics, they didn't have splints, they didn't have X-rays, they didn't have casts. Well, they had splints, they didn't have casts. Mm. But you know, it's disability was so much more present. Yeah. I think. So much more commonplace. So I mean, pr- you know, so much less medicalized in the sense that we medicalize disability and impairment. That I think that talking about fragmentary identity in the face of illness doesn't work.
3: Yeah. Yeah, you would think like it it it's probably like I think any term I'm going to use is going to s- not can really convey the point, but like it's more so a a sort of what do I want to say? It's it seems more like a a sort of just daily life kind of occurrence in a way that like obviously it is now as well, but we see it differently yeah. because of what everything you're saying, right? And and but it, otherwise, it's just sort of like, no, I mean, you're going to see a lot of people who have varying types of, of issues and disabilities, illnesses, what have you, because like you're saying there, it wasn't, you know, you didn't just go off and get cured in whatever way, or it was just sort of like life in a sort I I want to say normal, but obviously not to suggest that anything's abnormal, but it just seems like it was probably a more normal thing. in their world yeah normal life to have whatever you have kind of going on and yeah i think
4: it was it was i mean just practically speaking you know it was just much more normalized Mm -hmm. um which i think is always important to keep in mind that you know different different relationships to medicine different medicine like non-tradition non-modernized medicine non-westernized medicine as well Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, has given us such a specific view of illness and health, polarized, inherently opposite, whereas, you know, it always has been a spectrum. And it was even more so in the past when the distinction between the two was so much less stark.
3: Yeah. Thank you so much for doing this. It's been so much fun. I really appreciate it.
4: Oh, no. Thank you for having me. I mean, uh, it was such an exciting surprise when I saw your email in my inbox. I was like, ah, also because like so many scholars that I admire have been on your podcast and I was so like, but exciting that was just, to me, little old me. Uh, but yeah no this has been so much fun
3: oh I'm so glad and honestly like I just I love when everybody though reaches out about being on it like I'm really hesitant to ever reach out to people because I don't want them to feel bad if they don't want to be on the show so I mm. love my form where I can kind of solicit it from others and then get an idea of like what you're what you want to talk about and all that Mm -hmm. so thank you for filling it out um but is there anything uh anything you want to share with my listeners or anywhere you want them to follow you to learn more or what have you
4: um i am on the bird as many of us are uh yeah so it's just at justin bg b-i-g-g-i uh i'm terrible at it i go dormant for months and weeks and then i'm like i was hey, gonna you know? say
3: yeah i haven't seen you on there in ages
4: i'm just bad at it um, social media is 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 a lot i'm an, i'm deep down in the depths of my heart i am a cantankerous old man um i, I truly old.
3: wish i was better at avoiding it like i'm envious so
4: <laughs> i just have terrible objects object permanence so i uninstalled the app from my phone and now it's like every once in a while i'm like oh yeah dude twitter huh? but uh i'm hoping also also because i am technically taking a bit of a sabbatical from academia and that is all academia all of the time uh, i mm. think i suspect i will definitely become more active on it when i am once more in the trenches
3: well that's wonderful and then we'll be able to learn more about what you're studying then yeah. so
4: that's yeah great. no this was fantastic
3: Uh, nerds, 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 thank you as always. And again, as always, it is the coolest thing in the goddamn world that you all love to listen to me talk with scholars and authors and academics and anyone who has this level of nerdy knowledge to share. It's such a thrill, particularly when we get to talk and learn about issues like disability in the ancient world, issues that were just as important then as they are now, but are just now being really studied and understood on a wider scale. I fucking love when people can come on and share this kind of knowledge. So again, huge thank you to Justin for joining me and huge thank you to you all for listening. What a cool job I have. Let's Talk About Myths Baby is written and produced by me, Liv Albert. Michaela Smith is the Hermes to my Olympians and handles so many podcast related things. She's a dream. Grace Roby is our intern. Stephanie Foley works to transcribe the podcast for YouTube captions and accessibility. Ugh. The podcast is hosted and monetized by ACAST. I am Liv and I love this shit. <laughs>
0: Tidy up those flower beds and keep your walkways looking sharp with RYOBI's 40-volt cordless string trimmer. Yard work. Done and done. Click into Memorial Day savings happening now at your cordless power source, The Home Depot. Shop now at The Home Depot or homedepot.com. How doers get more done.
1: If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Are
2: the old world picturesque shores of Europe calling you? Set sail on an adventure with Avalon Waterways. Enjoy an elevated cruising experience.